Welcome to the University of New Mexico Center for Development and Disability Autism Conversations in the Schools podcast. This series, as well as our online trainings, have been developed in collaboration with the New Mexico Public Education Department for educators who would like to learn more about evidence-based practices. We hope that you enjoy these podcasts, and if you have any questions about these resources or how we may support your school district, please contact the UNMCDD at 505-272-1852. Welcome to the Autism Conversations in the School podcast, presented by the New Mexico Public Education Department and the Autism and Other Developmental Disabilities Program at the UNM CDD. I am Patrick Blevins, Manager of School and Applied Behavior Analysis Services at the CDD. Today, we're speaking with Travis Quintana, one of our behavior analyst consultants. Travis, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, I'd love to. Thank you, Patrick. My name is Travis Quintana. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst at UNM's Center for Development and Disability. For the past couple of years, we've been working with special ed departments, um, going into classrooms and districts all over the state, helping uh, individuals with autism spectrum disorder um, and, and providing better outcomes for them as a kind of a consultation role. Prior to that, I was a special education teacher at a couple of schools focused on behavioral needs. And before that, I was an educational assistant for a few years. Thank you, Travis. One thing I need to mention, um, and some of you listeners might have noticed that we have a new theme song, and that is actually composed by Travis. So thank you, Travis, for putting that together for us. Um, Today's topic is going to be on the concept of instructional control. This is a skill that sort of blurs the line between the science of teaching and the art of teaching. And it's something that uh, newer teachers, either in general education or special education, have a bit of a difficulty establishing. Instructional control is one of our main focuses when we go out into classrooms um, for consultations. And it's one of those things that you know it exists when you see it. And you know it doesn't exist when you don't see it. But it's not the easiest thing to define. So if we start there, Travis, how do we actually define instructional control for, especially for beginning teachers? Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe a, a quick definition of instructional control. And like you said, it's it's going to be different in every every setting that you're in, the uh, relationship with students in the classroom and, and what you're trying to teach. Um, instructional control, I, I think, could simply be thought of as the likelihood, say I'm the teacher, it's the likelihood that a directive that I give, a task demand that I that I give, a, a request that I give for a student has a high likelihood of being successfully followed, completed in, in an appropriate manner by that student. Um, and this could be a academic skill, developmental skill, it could be a functional skill getting through our, our day at school. Yeah, I think that's a maybe maybe too simple. It is it is more complex when you think about it. And I do like the differentiation between the the kind of science of teaching and the art of teaching. Uh, we know we go to school to learn how to teach, whether it's literacy, uh, communication skills. Like I was mentioning a second ago, we might be working on focusing on developmental skills more than traditional academics sometimes. Um, but it's also how essentially reinforcing you are and the environment is and if your your student is enjoying their time with you, uh, quite simply, I think that's 
kind of the art of teaching. That's the, that's the love of teaching, in my opinion, is is making every moment as as fun and positive as it can possibly be. So what I'm hearing from you is that it's more than just sort of being an authoritative uh, figure. I think sometimes we we joke that um, the behavior, student behavior, that's most reinforcing for general ed teachers. Um, especially is, you know, sit at your desk, be quiet, listen to what I say and do what I say. And and what we're trying to get at is something a, a little bit more, a little broader. Am I right on that? Right. So if I could nerd out uh, for just a moment and talk about the functions of behavior uh, through the lens of applied behavior analysis, I think that's a good way to look at an authoritative teaching style, which uh, in my opinion, doesn't quite lend itself to effective instructional control. This um, is looking at a student in the classroom and and sort of how they how much they want to be in that classroom environment. So with authoritative teaching styles, it's a lot of like you were saying, you need to sit down, you need to have a quiet body, you need to do your work quietly as independently as possible. These are mechanisms that typically uh, an individual like a, like a student is going to want to get away from, right? So we look that as look at that as escape behavior. Um, I am completing this aversive thing so that I can get a, away from it as quickly as possible. Uh, we can also look at the idea of negative reinforcement in that way that simply put is you are removing something aversive from the environment to increase a, a desirable behavior or skill to be used more often in the future. I think that holds hands well with authoritative teaching styles, but it doesn't really, I, I look at authoritative teaching styles as kind of a, a one-way street. The teacher is, is delivering um, task demands, requests uh, to the student. Uh, based on on kind of really purely academic skill sets, like you were saying to the those prerequisite skills, we need to be able to sit at the desk and learn because that's the only place to learn, which it isn't. But we're we're creating these, I, in my opinion, more aversive learning environments for students that uh, they want to get away from. They don't want to participate in the in the learning moment or be in the classroom any longer than they have to. I think that's largely a result of an authoritative teaching style. If we think about the functions of behavior through the lens of uh, ABA, right, we have escape, access to tangible objects or environments, access to uh, interactions with people. We want to create, uh, with, with instructional control, these, these functions of behavior that, that uh, the student wants to be around not only the teacher, but finds the classroom to be a positive, fun place to be. I think with an authoritative teaching style, the student wants to get away from those things typically because it's not as fun. Thank you, Travis. I think one thing I want to reiterate real quick is that when we are working with teachers in schools and during consultations, that we are focusing on the behavior of the teacher more so than the behavior of the students. In terms of instructional control and sort of resources for teaching, there is one sort of manual that, that sort of pops up all the time by Schramm and Miller, the seven steps of earning instructional control. And so I'm wondering why are there seven steps and what are those seven steps? Sure. Yeah, it's a great system to put in place. I think one of the, before we even launch into every step, it's important to keep in mind as we move through this that Every step needs to be accounted for and done correctly, consistently for instructional control to really be able to happen in this way. To go back to something I said a moment ago, too, when we're looking at authoritative teaching styles, 
does that fit the definition of instructional control where the directive, the request that I as a teacher give to a student has a higher likelihood of of being completed successfully? With an authoritative style, you could say that that definition is correct. Uh, but you know the point here is that the student might be following those directives, those requests, those task demands because they are, for lack of a better term, maybe in in fear of what happens if they don't do that. They might have something taken away. They might receive a reprimand from the teacher. So it's going again back to that idea of I'm I I'm, I want to escape this aversive thing. What I love about the Schramm and Miller book is the seven step process they outline for instructional control. That definition stays the same of I, as the teacher delivering this task demand directive, whatever it's going to be, has a higher likelihood of being successfully followed and completed in an appropriate way by the student. But the point is, is that the student is not finding this request from me or the environment or me as a as an individual working with them in general as aversive. They're looking at this as a positive working relationship. It's It's not authoritative really at all. Um, and so I think that's important to think about going forward. But right, as you said, there are seven steps to the instructional control process. So let's start by briefly going over all seven steps of the instructional control process. Step one, maintain control over preferred items and activities. Step two, make each interaction fun. Step three, say what you mean and mean what you say. Step four, pair following directions with positive outcomes. Number five, provide consistent reinforcement. Step six, prioritize student interests. Step seven, manage difficult behavior or challenging behavior. So let's dive in with step one, maintain control over preferred items and activities. A simple way to think about this is that you are the giver of good things in the classroom environment, and those good things are not freely available in the classroom environment. They should be able to be earned but they're not just out on your desk, on the table, in a calm down corner, anything like that. You are going to create contingencies um, in which the student can earn uh, limited access to these preferred items and activities throughout the day based on completing task demands, requests, directives, et cetera, uh, that you are giving to them. And when they complete those things successfully and appropriately, uh, they can gain access to these preferred items and activities. Simply put, you are the giver of good things. This is helping the student to recognize that you are fun as well with these preferred items and activities. Um, in, in ABA, we can call this stimulus-stimulus pairing, and it is pairing yourself with things the individual already views as fun in order to make the environment and, and your interactions with that student uh, basically more more reinforcing over time. So when you say fun, Travis, um, are we talking about entertaining the students or or is there a, a different use of that word? Yeah, great question. We are finding what the student already likes and we are participating in that preferred activity uh, with that individual. And this this varies, obviously, greatly from student to student, but it's showing them that we are willing to go into their world, so to speak, into their preferred interests and participate in those things with them, which does bring me to step two, which is making each interaction fun, especially if we're talking about something like at the beginning of the school year, we have a new student that is transferred into our class with the idea of instructional control being this thing that is slowly built over time. We can't expect the student to sort of operate in a 
traditional student way, day one, so to speak, of being in our classroom, we have to pair with them. We have to, again, show them that we can be fun. We recognize their interests. We can play with them at their level, however they would like to play. Uh, this involves knowing what they like to do, what, what activities and items are reinforcing uh, for them, or, or I should say just highly preferred for them, and plugging ourselves into the mix. It, it sometimes does not look like teaching at all. You are playing with Legos with a with an individual. You are walking around the track and and playing uh, Pokemon Go on on your phone with the individual. It it can take many shapes and and many forms. And for older students, what might that look like? Yeah, older students I've worked with, we might we might talk about sports. Who's your favorite you know football quarterback? I had a student that loved talking about Patrick Mahomes. We would we would look at the game stats from you know obviously this would be during the NFL season, but what what was the game like last Sunday? Who did who did the, uh, his team play? Uh, what was the score? You know how many touchdowns did he was he able to accomplish being quarterback? Uh, interests change over time, and as teachers, we're, the the onus is kind of on us to pay close attention to that, make sure that we're we're dialed in, and uh, that's great. So what is step three? So step three uh, is is where we are going to need to be careful with our language that we use with students. Simply put, we are saying what we mean, and we mean what we say. Uh, there there must be a contingency in place between uh, the the student's response to our instruction and access that that student is able to gain uh, to reinforcing items or activities in the classroom environment. There's a lot of stuff to unpack here, I think. One, one simple thing, and, and these, these are, I've certainly made this mistake many times, and I see it happen a lot, and it's, it's a really easy one to fix, is framing instruction, like what we've talked about, it could be a task demand, a request, whatever, in a statement, uh, not in a question-based form. So the classic mistake you can make is, are you ready to do work right now? Or can you, can you work on this assignment with me? Uh, because you're allowing the student to opt out, right? And if the student says no, uh, you should honor that. If you if you force them to uh, sort of comply in that way after they've said no, I don't want to do this, um, it it's going to sort of make rapport uh, uh, happen at a, at a much slower rate. It might damage rapport. In fact, uh, you're showing the student that you don't really care. Uh, even though you ask them the question if they would like to work or not, and if they said no, you don't really care that they said no, you're not honoring it. So a way to get around this is to frame it as a statement, is to say, it's time to work. That's that's a quick way to start uh, getting getting uh, your, your foot in the door with step three. Uh, but the, the other part of step three is to make sure that you are following through on whatever contingency you've set. I guess I should define contingency really quickly. It's it's basically, if you're familiar with a first-then practice, it would be first you need to complete this task demand, then you get access to reinforcement. This, as soon as the individual, as soon as the student finishes whatever task demand it was, it could be write a five-paragraph essay. It could be line up and we're going to go transition to the cafeteria for lunch. Uh, whatever it is, it could be the, what I'm trying to say is it could be the the smallest task demand ever. And that's where we should start with students. You must provide that reinforcement that you have promised for that individual. If you don't, you've kind of delivered an empty promise. It's going to be a lot harder to maintain trust uh, and respect 
uh, with that student. Great. I think goes back to the idea that instructional control is not about do as I say, uh, again, in an authoritative matter. It's the teacher building a skill that's adaptive to being able to engage in the students and establish a relationship with the students so that, you know, whether the student's having a good day or bad day, they know that they're going to receive consistent behavior from you. And especially if they're having a bad day or if they're struggling with a hard assignment, that they can come back to you um, for help. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where people can get into trouble as well when you might feel that it's important to deliver a reprimand or you can kind of by mistake fall into that authoritative role again. Um, we you know, want to let the individual know that we do control access to preferred items and activities in the, in the classroom environment, uh, but we also uh, want to make sure that what we're asking of them is, is attainable, that it's, it's not too tall of an order, so to speak, for the individual. We want to make sure that however good or, or a bad day they might be having, um, that there is, you know, they, they need to put some, some effort forth, but we're not going to push that too far with them. And certainly we're not going to uh, deliver reprimands for, you know, taking, taking um, a bit longer to complete an assignment or if they need help with something, right? We want to be able to provide that assistance whenever they need it. So you mentioned that step four is pairing following directions with positive outcomes. Um, what exactly does that mean? Yeah. So kind of what we've been talking about, we are um, showing the students that, hey, you know, you need to kind of listen to what I'm saying, this, this, uh, this request that I'm giving to you. And again, try to not ask a question, make, make it a statement when you do uh, deliver these directions to a student. You're, you're making sure that you pair that with a positive outcome, right? With something that's reinforcing for them. It's the idea that uh, you got to do this thing that you might not like to do, but there is something in it for you at the end once you're done with it. And I, as the teacher, have made sure to cultivate this this system of reinforcement that's meaningful and specific and individualized to you as the student. Something that we also really want to pay close attention to is, like I kind of mentioned earlier, whether or not the student's having a, a good or bad day, um, and especially in the beginning steps of instructional control, the beginning stages, I should say, uh, we want to start small. So the task demands, the requests, the directions that we give them, uh, like I was saying a moment ago, need to be kind of quickly attainable. The, the individual needs to not only understand what's expected of them, but they need to kind of have the skill set uh, already to be able to accomplish these things without experiencing too much of a challenge, without having to rely on teacher assistance for 90% of, of what they're doing. Um, or even, you know, much less of a percentage, but that as just kind of a, a quick example there. So this this helps to show the student that following directions from the teacher equals fun things. Um, it also, going back to the concept of stimulus-stimulus pairing, is showing that the teacher is is also fun. The idea that the teacher is going to pair themselves with these preferred items, preferred activities. We don't just give the student the box of Legos and say, okay, go play by as soon as they follow the direction that was given to them. We want to do as much as we can to participate with them in that activity as much as possible. That's going to look very different for every student and certainly across the age span. But it's important to make sure we're involved with that reinforcement as well. Great. And so what's the next step in the sequence? 
Yes, that does uh, bring us to step five, uh, which is provide consistent reinforcement. This is the step that makes sure that we are uh, quite simply consistent with the entire process of developing instructional control, because if we're not consistent, especially at the early stages of this, we run the risk of uh, simply not developing effective instructional control, again, it, in, in the framework of a positive working relationship with the student. Um, like I said, in the early stages, we want really frequent reinforcement. It might be that really small task demand that we ask of that student uh, provides uh, quite a bit of reinforcement for them. Uh, as we go through the process, we can fade the amount of reinforcement. Um, in ABA, we would call this schedule thinning. But it's the idea that we know and the student knows that we're going to follow through with this this idea of the contingency, right? You, you got to do this thing that I've asked you to do. But like like I've said, there's something really fun in it for you. And we're going to make sure that it's not too challenging at first. We want to increase that challenge. That's why we want to thin that schedule of reinforcement over time and very gradually. But that, that's kind of the name of the game. We want to get the student to a point where we would call it a variable interval schedule of reinforcement in ABA, but where the student is not quite sure sometimes when they're going to gain access to reinforcement, but we've established enough rapport with them at this point that they know that they will. They know that we, we're not going to withhold it um, from them for, for completing a task demand of some kind. But this is how we can, over time, make this process a bit less laborious on our end. But again, you have to have that rapport. You have to have that trust and respect from the student before you can before you can move forth with that process. So this brings us to step six of instructional control, uh, which is prioritizing student interests. As you can see, you know, I've, I've spoken to this a little bit already. We can see how the seven, the seven steps, pardon me, all fit into each other. They all kind of beautifully dovetail into this cohesive process that we're doing. But it's, it's just hammering home that we need to make sure that we understand what the individual likes in terms of items and activities that we can provide for them in the school setting. This is the highest priority. If we do not have something that the student wants, we should not expect instructional control to ever occur. I, I want to quickly pause here and again, go back to functions of behavior. When we are working with, say, an individual with autism spectrum disorder that their, we might call it their reinforcement repertoire is, is quite small, and it might rely almost entirely on that automatic function of behavior, uh, we might have a student that is engaging in perhaps gross motor stereotypy throughout the day. We should, you know, allow them obviously to do that. But this is an area too where if we're not seeing that they are particularly interested in items or activities that, that kind of access to tangible things as reinforcing stimuli, and at the moment it's it's mostly based in, in stereotypy and automatically reinforced behaviors, we might want to pause and really zoom into step six here almost at the beginning to help that individual expand their reinforcement repertoire. This can be done by Again, obviously getting to know the student by talking to primary caregivers, by talking to uh, folks in the school setting who have worked with the student before. It could also be bringing in just brand new stuff, novel items, novel activities, seeing if the student is interested in them, because it's hard to work with um, stereotypy within the instructional control process at first we sort of should look at that and recognize that we should we should build up more things uh, that are outside of that automatic function for the individual to be able to earn throughout the day. Moving on, 
uh, that's kind of a specific one, but I have worked with many students where that was the case initially, and you have to build up to whether it's a snack break, whether it's a cool sensory-based uh, like light up uh, fidget toy kind of thing. You, you you need to work with the student and and see what what they go for, what they don't go for. Call those kind of preference assessments, I suppose. There's many ways to do that. But the more the more items you have that you know the student prefers, the less risk you run of that uh, student becoming satiated on a, on a particular thing, aka getting tired of it. And you can switch things out fast enough that that the student kind of maintains this interest uh, amongst a larger array of, of reinforcing stimuli. Throughout this process, too, uh, continue to pair yourself with reinforcement, whenever, whatever that looks like. At the beginning stages, let's go back to the maybe gross motor stereotypy uh, with the individual. You might participate at first. I've done this, and it gets traction most of the time, right? Everyone's different. Participate in that gross motor stereotypy with the student briefly. Show them that you're you're getting down to their level. Hey, this is kind of cool, this thing that you're doing. I get it. This is awesome. You have to kind of pair yourself with where the student is uh, in, in their interests. That is just, again, going back to step two. So um, we're on step seven, which might be, at least from the perspective of the teacher, the priority step, which is managing difficult behavior. So oftentimes uh, when we're asked to come into classrooms, uh, this is the main focus. So you know how, how can we help them put out the fire? Um, but within the seven steps, this is sort of the last step. Um, sort of highlighting, you know, all the things you need to do before you get to here. But within the context of teaching this instructional control, wh what does it mean to manage difficult behavior? Yeah, so this is this is sort of, uh, I think, a bit of the the linchpin of instructional control too. In order to manage difficult behavior, you've got to have the first six steps firing on all cylinders, so to speak. Oftentimes, you'll hear statements in classrooms such as the student knows what they need to do. They just don't want to do it. Um, well, they don't want to do it, and, and they very well might know that know what the skill is that they need to accomplish, but they don't want to do it because you don't have rapport with them yet. Simply put, they don't want to listen to you because there's nothing in it for them. So that's where we, when we go into a classroom, we see that might be the case. We back up. We start talking about the the earlier steps of instructional control, pairing yourself with fun things in the environment, getting away from that authoritative aspect of teaching, which I think is is something that people do by default. I've certainly done it where you need to manage difficult behavior and you slip into an authoritative mindset and maybe you're, you're dictating things that the student needs to do. You need to have calm hands. You need to sit down. You need to take deep breaths whatever it is. If you don't have rapport with the student, they're most likely not going to follow those those directives, and it's just going to make things worse. So moving on from that, the idea of managing difficult behavior in step seven is that you are showing the student that not following directions will not result in reinforcement, quite simply put. So if if we go back to the idea of a first, then first you need to do your work, then you can gain access to this uh, preferred item that you requested that you wanted to work for. We should make sure that we withhold that preferred item or activity, right, whatever it is, until the individual follows that direction. This is why it's important to start small, very important part of the instructional control process, because we don't want to get ourselves in a situation where the direction that we've given is just way too challenging, way too hard for that student in that moment. They're likely not going to follow that direction or complete that task in an appropriate way, meaning they won't gain access to reinforcement. Um, think back to uh, that idea of providing consistent 
reinforcement uh, really frequently in the early stages of this. If you're not doing that, you're not going to be able to manage difficult behavior as time goes on. There is something I would like to mention too, where by, by no means am I saying with managing difficult behavior that if the student is not following directions, if they are not, if they are engaging in disruptive behavior in class, that we should just ignore that and wait for the individual to follow the direction because we keep reprompting them over and over and over again to, again, whatever that direction task demand might be, just telling them to, you know, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this while problem behavior is occurring. Again, that's falling back into the authoritative mindset. And something that we certainly uh, push these days is the idea of TIC or trauma-informed care, where we want to address that, that problem behavior when it's occurring. We might give that student our attention. We might be prompting them to participate in some kind of self-regulation strategy. That's fine. We, we, we just don't want to ignore the student when they're engaging in problem behavior. We don't want to create uh, a trauma for that individual. And it's one of those, those sad but true things that we can assume that most of, mo pardon me, most individuals with disabilities have experienced trauma in their lives in some way, shape, or form. Um, it's sort of unavoidable. We, we want to make sure we're not contributing to that um, in the classroom at all. So the name of the game here is being able to help that individual through that tough moment and then getting back on track to, okay, what was the thing we were working on? And uh, let's just finish this. Um, I can help you with it. We can gain access to the thing you requested afterward. But that's that's sort of, in, in my opinion, a really important part of this is at no point in the instructional control process when especially challenging behavior is occurring, should we ignore it. So we've gone over what the seven steps are. What are some practical strategies for implementing um, these steps. Yeah, great. There's a lot of stuff you can do that you have at your fingertips as a teacher that are what we would call evidence-based practices, right? There's mountains of research that show that these these practices, these strategies, when done correctly, have a very high likelihood of being successful in, in whatever you're trying to do at that moment. So let's start with something called pairing. So we've we've mentioned this already. I've talked about the you know, the nerdy ABA term would be stimulus-stimulus pairing, um, but we are quite simply building our rapport with that individual, uh, with that student. At first, like I've been saying, we, we involve ourselves in those preferred activities, uh, those preferred items. Again, it might be participating in stereotypy at first with the student. If you don't pair, you you should not expect anything to go your way, so to speak. The, the rest of the steps of instructional control will not work. Contingencies will not be followed. Um, again, it's it's the it's going back to that thing we hear so often of the the student knows what they need to do. They're just not doing it. They're likely not doing it because you have not paired with them. You have not shown them yet that completing this thing is going to result in fun. So yeah, another another evidence based practice we would like to to focus on when when using the uh, I should say implementing the step the seven steps of instructional control would be prompting. Prompting is providing assistance to a learner uh, in order for them to successfully complete a skill, uh, a task demand, a request, all of these things, right? Prompting can be done in a variety of ways. It's going to, again, vary depending on the student. So the, you know, I, I'm going to say this probably too many times, but we've got to be pretty keenly aware of each student's preferences, not only for things they want to earn, but preferences for the way in which we can provide assistance to them when they're 
trying to get through that task demand, whatever it might be. We know about prompting hierarchies. There are least to most and most to least prompting hierarchies. So let's quickly look at that. A least to most prompting hierarchy would be starting with prompting uh, using the least amount of assistance and then moving into the most amount of assistance. So I might start with a, a gestural prompt. I might point at, if I'm, say, doing a discrete trial with a student um, after I deliver the cue of touch the rectangle and the student does not respond immediately, I might touch the rectangle myself, giving that prompt. Student might still not respond to that. I might go all the way to a partial or full physical prompt where I'm gently providing hand over hand uh, prompting to have them touch the rectangle. This sometimes, depending on the learner, can be aversive. And the name of the game in instructional control is to make things as, as like aversiveness free as possible. So a student that is prompted over and over to engage in the skill that they need help with might feel a, 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 not necessarily a sense of failure, but, oh, my God, this is taking forever. And I'm, I'm kind of experiencing frustration with this. I don't quite understand what's being asked of me yet because this is maybe a brand new skill that we're working on. This might be where a most to least prompting hierarchy um, can can be more beneficial. We're going in with the most assistance needed to complete the skill successfully right off the bat. So the teaching trial, if you will, uh, is a lot shorter. The individual understands the, you know, especially if we're if working on a student acquiring a new skill, they understand what it is, what it looks like, how to do it. Very straightforward. There's not that repeated over and over kind of that, that sense of frustration or, yeah, perhaps even failure. Um, in ABA, we might even lean into, and this is sort of most to least prompting hierarchy, would be errorless teaching. Right off the bat, we are just trying to make this as easy as possible on the student, that idea that we provide that task demand and we are starting small. Uh, the faster that they can get through it and gain access to reinforcement, the better. Um, so prompting, prompting is incredibly important. And I should say too, some kids, some some students really don't like most to least prompting hierarchy or errorless teaching. So it, it again, it's going back to that individualization of how you're going to implement this practice. But prompting is something we do all day, every day as teachers. And the, the hierarchy is also there for a reason too, right? Do we want it to be errorless teaching forever? Absolutely not. The, the hierarchy is there to make sure that the student doesn't fall into the trap of prompt dependency. We are making sure that we are using the hierarchy systematically and that the student is able to become independent with this skill over time. That's the name of the game. Instructional control sort of comes in to make sure that at no moment in time are we asking too much of the student, uh, pushing them too far, having them feel that frustration or perceived failure of, of a skill as they're learning it, and that we're providing reinforcement at a fast rate. Uh, two, two more evidence-based practices, I'll sort of talk about them in tandem here. They both plug into prompting uh, hierarchies, whether it's least to most, most to least, whether you're doing kind of an errorless teaching approach as well at the beginning. These are called shaping and fading. So let's start with shaping. Uh, this is supporting, certainly teaching that new skill to the student. We're hel helping them to acquire a new skill. This could be traditional academics. It can be a developmental skill, communication, a new communication uh, method that we're building with the student. It could be right in that in that functional realm as well. Shaping means, once again, like we, like we see in instructional control, we are starting small. We are going to reinforce what we would call an approximation of the skill. So it's going to be the sort of building blocks of the kind of maybe we've written an IEP goal that we know is going to take the student uh, a while 
to become fluent with. But for right now, we're not going to, again, push them too hard, make them feel fl- uh, uh, frustrated or that that perhaps perceived sense of failure. We're going to make sure that we can reinforce every step along the way. I like to use the kind of the visual analogy of of going up a set of stairs. Uh, We should not expect the student to jump up a flight of stairs. We want to uh, reinforce them for going up each step of the stairs at at a time. And we slowly build that skill, that communication system, that, again, traditional academic as well uh, uh, skill set over time. We just want to slowly, it's like a snowball, right? This is also another nerdy ABA term called behavioral momentum. We're starting small so that they feel more success quickly. They're going to be more inclined, our student, hopefully. And this, again, we have to have that rapport. We have They have to have that trust with us that we will provide reinforcement, but that they might be more willing to try a more challenging thing in the future once they feel that momentum of, okay, I've got this, I've got this going. I'm, I'm doing what they're asking me. It's not too hard. I'm getting reinforced for it. I'm, I'm ready to try something more challenging now. So when we connect shaping to the idea of a prompting hierarchy, it's, again, how much assistance, basically, are we providing for that individual? And what level of that skill are we looking at reinforcing for right now? Just really, I know I haven't provided any examples of shaping, but we might be asking a student to request a preferred snack for snack break in the classroom. We might be slowly building their vocal behavior. They're, they're using their vocal cords to communicate. And we might want them to, at some point, say, I want popcorn, please. But right now, we're kind of working on getting uh, sort of one syllable out at a time. So the individual might say, pa, or pop, even. And that's all we're looking for at the beginning. That's the uh, approximation of that desired skill, the, the desired behavior, whatever, that we're working on. We will give them access to that popcorn right after they have said, um, and over time, maybe we build, you know, obviously to popcorn. Um, I would suggest doing I want popcorn after that. I don't think we should be overly concerned with pleasantries such as please at the beginning. Again, that please can maybe be an abstract concept too. But again, it's the idea of not asking too much too soon from the student. Uh, moving on to the evidence-based practice of fading. So this is this plugs right into the prompting hierarchy as well. It's what I mentioned a moment ago in terms of removing our assistance over time with the individual, right? We want to make sure that we're avoiding as best we can that trap of prompt dependency that, that students might fall into. We do this systematically using a prompting hierarchy, but that's that's the name of the game is fading. We know they need this much assistance now, and we're providing this assistance to, re, to to help build this, again, an approximation of, let's say, to go back to the example, that desired uh, request for the student to be able to ask, I want popcorn. And over time, we want to, you know, prompt them in, in less and less intrusive ways so that they can become more independent with that communicative skill. To go back one more time, this is the idea in instructional control of starting small, providing frequent reinforcement. If you're not doing this, you might never gain instructional control with the individual. Uh, moving on to another, again, strategy to help implement instructional control, the, the seven-step process that is what we call NET, or natural environment teaching. I believe this goes by many names. I, I do recognize that there are slight nuances between each methodology within naturalistic teaching approaches. But right, if you've ever heard like naturalistic teaching, very similar to NET. Milieu teaching, very similar to NET. 
um, incidental teaching, very similar. What is it? NLP, natural language paradigm, very, very similar. Um, the, the idea here is that instead of that kind of more authoritative, uh, I am doing this teacher-led thing and giving these task demands and you must follow them. And again, there's there's reinforcement in it for you. There's a reward at the end of this tunnel of, of uh, work that you need to do or, or whatever it might be. Um, naturalistic teaching provides a, a much better way, especially with the earlier stages of instructional control, to have it be a student-led instructional moment instead of teacher led. So this is assuming that we're we're not quite paired with the student yet. We're uh, we're going through that stimulus stimulus pairing process which can take quite a while. And I also say don't ever be afraid, you know, if you need to just hang out with your student, play with your student, get get down on their level, do what they're doing with them. That is just as important as any academic that you're going to be doing later on. Um, and so you shouldn't feel bad about, you know, certainly those first few days with the student where you're getting to know them and they're getting to know you. We shouldn't expect them to do much in terms of what, you know, might be become the, the kind of traditional classroom uh, routine. Uh, so naturalistic teaching is this moment where you can, again, let the student lead it, let them gravitate towards something that's reinforcing in your classroom. Um, I also recognize that if we look at the steps of instructional control, this this might sound like it's going against one of the steps, um, which is to maintain control over preferred items and activities. That's very, very important. We want to, you know, make sure that the student understands we are the giver of good things, but you need to, you know, follow my directions and and in a way that's not too challenging, but you can gain access to these fun things. At the beginning, we might want to just make things freely available. Again, only at the beginning, uh, but this helps us, you know, follow the student's lead. They might gravitate toward the Duplos. We're going to be playing with Duplos with them after that. They might gravitate toward the iPad. They might want to watch, again, a, a, a uh, NFL highlight reel on YouTube, something like that. And we slowly embed very small task demands into that moment of, of basically playing with the student. If it's Duplos, we could be building a house alongside our student building a house and we could ask them very slyly, I think, you know, oh, can you hand me that blue piece? You know, I want to put it on the roof of my house. And the student is playing. Yeah, sure, you can have the blue piece, but we're, we're it's, I, I hate to use the term tricking them into learning, but we're making sure that they know what the color blue is. Maybe we're asking them to hand me the, the blue rectangle. There might be a blue square in the, in, the, in the mix as well. We're seeing if they can identify shapes. This is going to hedge our bets that the, the individual, the student is going to have a, a more successful time with that task demand that we've kind of cleverly embedded into play. Again, the student is leading. It's not naturalistic teaching if the student is not uh, engaging in a preferred thing of their choosing, right? If we're, if we're providing something contingent on them completing a task demand, that's not naturalistic teaching. We might call that something more akin to like a discrete trial. But with naturalistic teaching, right off the bat, the student is highly motivated to uh, be engaging in this preferred activity. They would like to continue engaging in it. We're not asking them to pause that activity at all. We are playing with them, but we are asking them small task demands and seeing where they're at, seeing how well they respond to that. But we have a higher likelihood of the student being more successful with that particular task demand at that time, because once again, they're already engaged in a preferred activity. Uh, they're not sitting at a desk devoid of fun things, and we're expecting them to, again, 
have all those skills ready to go that they might not have yet. So another practical strategy to make sure you've got going at all times in your classroom would be providing structure and predictability, not only for that structure from day to day, but again, predictability for uh, even the arrangement of the room can go a long way. Predictability in terms of uh, reinforcement as well. That consistency is such an important part of the instructional control process. So going back quickly to the NET strategy that I was talking about a moment ago, there's a time and place for NET, but the more rapport we build with our student, the more skills we can help that student attain to kind of be able to navigate their way through the classroom environment, the more we can eventually transition to more teacher-led activities. So structure and predictability uh, falls into that. Um, we want to make sure that, again, we are we are kind of in control of the the flow of the day, what what is how, how our day looks. We might start with um, circle time with younger kids. If we're working with high school kids, we might do a morning meeting. We might look at a news article. We might look at the weather that day, whatever, you know, how your day is going to flow. There's, there's going to be opportunities in every moment of, of these staff-directed activities for the student to be able to earn reinforcement. And the more that this is, the, the more that student experiences that contingency, essentially, right? I, I work and do this thing first, then I get access to a reward. The more often that process happens and comes to fruition, the faster we are going to build instructional control with the student. And closely tied to uh, that idea of structure and predictability is setting expectations and classroom rules. So there's some some sort of basic things to make sure that you've got going when you when you develop like a, a list of classroom rules, for example, right? Is that they are observable and measurable, right? These are these are things that we uh, need to be able to to kind of concretely define. We don't want a rule to be be nice or show respect or something like that. My idea of being nice might be quite different from yours. My idea of what respect looks like in a specific setting like a classroom might look different or or be different. We want these things to be as kind of clear cut and and objectively described as we as we possibly can. We want them to be positively stated as well. This is something that again we see commonly and I I certainly did it as a teacher as well is uh we're focusing on labeling the the behaviors we don't want to see more than labeling the behaviors we do want to see. So the rules should not be things like no hitting. Uh, the rules could be safe hands instead. Uh, and that's in the moment when we're dealing with managing difficult behavior, step seven, right? Instead of saying stop hitting, uh, we're, we would like to prompt them with, hey, let's have safe hands. This is prompting them to engage in what we call a replacement behavior, but it's helping them along the way. It's not just delivering a reprimand and the student goes, well, stop hitting. What else am I going to do? We're reminding them, hey, dude, remember, have safe hands. The sooner you have safe hands, the sooner we can get back to what we were doing, the sooner you can earn that thing that you requested. Going online with this, expectations and rules should be simple. Like I said, three to five words at most, I would say, if you can get away with it. And limited in number, I'm, I'm a big stickler on this. Uh, you can't have a, when I was an EA, I remember working in a classroom where the, the 
you know, the classroom rules, there was like 15 rules. It was stressful for me to keep track of all of those things at once, let alone expecting the student to understand that they all of those 15 things need to be in line at any given moment for them to potentially gain access to reinforcement. Again, going back to the idea of starting small with students and, and building from there. My, my general rule of thumb is have five to seven rules tops. In addition, sit down with your students and come up with these classroom rules with them. Um, have their buy-in, have their input, make it a collaborative process. Uh, the more that you follow these rules, again, to, like it's like a contingency, the sooner you gain access to the, your, your favorite items and activities that you can have access to at school. That's great, Travis. Those are some valuable strategies. And some of them are, you know, can be quite complicated. We have a bunch of training videos on our website at hsc.unm.edu forward slash cdd forward slash and if you go there and want some more information on some of these strategies uh, look for the autism programs tab and then click on the autism portal and we have trainings for educators listed there we've gone over what the seven steps are and sort of what the general purpose of them is and so i'm wondering how often should we practice these steps and then how do you know if the process is working yeah, so that's a great question. Um, to start with, uh, how often should I revisit these steps? Simply put, as often as needed. Remember that the seven steps to instructional control, they all need to be working. They all need to be accounted for. If something's not quite working, you got to zoom in, you got to adjust that thing to make sure that it, it's, it's uh, supporting the rest of the steps of instructional control. If one step is out of whack or is omitted, uh, you should not expect to develop instructional control with a student. So also remember that pairing is an ongoing process. The more that we ask of a student, the you know less amount of reinforcement they might experience over time at school, which is a good thing. Um, we, you know, we want them to be able to be more independent, to complete more things before gaining access to reinforcement that, 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 that might stretch pairing a little bit from time to time. We also want to keep in mind the idea that what's reinforcing now for the student might not be reinforcing tomorrow or next week or a month from now, the idea of satiation or getting, you know, burned out or, or, you know, getting just, I I'm done with Duplos forever, <laughs> whatever, or, or this fire truck toy. Um, I would like new things to be able to work for at school. Providing those novel things for the individual to work for uh, really can, can assist with that pairing process to make sure that we are, are staying paired with the student. Quite simply put, if you think back to our, our definition of instructional control that the directive that I give to a student as the teacher, um, if I do have instructional control with them, has a high likelihood of being followed and completed successfully and appropriately by that student. If we see a decrease in the student following our directions, things like that, the especially if we're, we're thinking back to the functions of behavior, we're seeing that student starting to avoid us more, move away from us more, move away from the learning environment, the, the learning moment, that's a key indicator that we need to go back and, and reestablish, make sure all seven steps of in, instructional control are in place. If done properly, the student is going to find the classroom environment, you as the teacher, you might have a teaching team with, with some EAs, uh, IAs, um, however that might look in your classroom. The student is going to want to be there more than anywhere else at school, like behaviors like elopement, running out of the classroom. Again, those escape things that have an escape function, we shouldn't really be seeing that. If we're seeing that, 
there's something going haywire with the instructional control process. Right. Uh, I guess that sort of answered your other question, uh, Patrick, but that, that's how we know it's working. If the student is approaching us, the student is following directions, if the student just seems to be enjoying themselves in the classroom more, we know that instructional control is working. So we can get away from that idea of they know what they need to be doing, they're just not doing it. Well, that's kind of on us as the educator. We need to make sure that we've developed respect with that individual. Then they will have a higher likelihood of following those directions. Great. Thank you, Travis. We've covered quite a bit today. And again, if you'd like some more information on the strategies or just instructional control and um, how to how to get it started, please reach out to us over at the UNM CDD. Any last comments uh, on instructional control, Travis? Um, just that, you know, we, we did cover a lot. There's a um, the evidence-based practices I mentioned. Uh, they aren't the only ones that can be utilized to help with the instructional control process. So if you, again, once you know your student, you know what works and doesn't work for them, go with that. You know, follow your your instinct on on what you think is going to provide the best outcome. And again, that positive working relationship with the student. The, the seven steps might seem daunting at first, but they all dovetail into each other so well that once you've really got it going, it's you're not even really having to think about all seven steps at once uh, because the, it's it's like this engine you've built. Just it, it becomes almost automated. You're you're making sure that that it's working you're, by how your student is responding to your instructions. Right. It's something that I think is a lot of fun. And again, my, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of front loading or, you know, what we call proactive aspects of this, that it's going to be more work up front. But as always with with teaching, the more work you put up front, the better the outcome later on. You're, you're not having to react to the things as they go wrong. You've built so many positive things into the learning environment and you're pairing yourself with them as often as possible. You, in my opinion, can't go wrong with that method. Great. Thanks again, Travis. Thank you for having me.